welcome to another episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on the issues of renewable energy, sustainability and entrepreneurship. In October 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a UN body charged with assessing the science related to climate change, released a special report on the potential impact of global warming and related greenhouse gas emission pathways. Described by the BBC as the most extensive warning yet on the risks of rising global temperatures, the document argues that rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes are required across all aspects of society in order to keep temperatures for warming more than the critical figure of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Four large-scale global systems were specifically singled out. Land use, cities, industry and energy. A key step in terms of achieving the IPCC's ambitions involves ensuring that 85% of electricity is derived from renewable sources by 2050. But with a global economy that is still largely running on carbon-based sources, what could that mean for businesses as well as individuals? To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by David Surplus, Director of B9 Energy Group, who in 2015 was awarded an OBE for his pioneering work within the field of renewable energy. David, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Laura. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. For anybody who's unfamiliar with B9 Energy, what areas is the business involved in? Well, the clue is in the name, (laughs) uh, because B9 uh, really is the... Word, English word benign, which means not harmful. I never, in all, so I've been reading a lot around the business and I have to admit, rather embarrassingly, I didn't pick up on that. But when you said it's so obvious. And not everybody does, so That's don't worry. That's very but, clever. Uh, yes, so um, it's benign energy, it's renewable energy. That's all we do. So it's there entirely to try and combat the problem of climate change. Uh, we set the company up in 1992 uh, when uh, it was the first time around climate change was a hot topic of conversation. And um, we looked at all of the different renewable energy technologies and we're quite happy to go into any and all of them. But we prioritised them in the order in which they would become commercially viable and they All the indications were that wind power was going to be the first to market of the uh, large contributing um, renewable technologies. So we concentrated on wind farm development in the early days and uh, uh, we can come on to that a little bit more. But uh, we then moved on to anaerobic digestion of organic wastes and uh, we built a series of engines for landfill gas uh, installations to prevent the methane from leaking into the atmosphere. Uh, In recent years we've um, perfected uh, wind and it's now fully bankable, fully mature technology. Uh, But as entrepreneurs uh, we're finding that that's not a space where we would particularly make money anymore so we've now moved on to the enabling technologies for complementing those renewables so energy storage energy management how do you put systems together which would allow you to get the most out of these renewable energy devices. Because that's something that I only learnt recently through reading around uh, your company and the industry more generally was the fact that 
often or not often but certainly frequently there is no capacity to capture some of that energy that's actually generated has that been one of the big challenges in the industry in recent decades well um in the early days when we were only a couple of percent you know of the total generation we were lost in the noise to be honest Um, And most of the contracts were must-take contracts, so the utilities had to buy our power, whether we were uh, generating or not, sort of thing. Um, um, But as the time went on and the penetrations of wind in Northern Ireland in particular became so big, then it causes a bit of a problem on the system. We create an imbalance if there's too much generation. And so nowadays, uh, the system operator has to switch the wind turbines off whenever it's too windy and there's not enough people wanting the power at that moment. So yes, uh, now our challenge is to try and provide controllable load that you can switch something on in the middle of the night to balance these turbines, keep them running. And that's really, we're looking at electrolysis of water to make hydrogen gas. Uh, and that hydrogen would be used as a fuel for buses and heavy goods wow. vehicles, trains, that kind of thing. And is that within sight now? Is that something that is no longer a sort of a future dream, but something that is a real possibility within the next number of years? Yes, and I think you're right to question that because since I started looking at hydrogen in 1987 or so, um it's always been five years away. <laughs> uh, today, it still is five years mm-hmm. away, but genuinely, I think it, it'll, it'll happen. Uh, two things, uh, the uh, machinery involved with electrolysis has now come right down in price, and they're offering uh, price points which can make uh, projects viable at today's economic climate. But don't forget that we're about to embark on decarbonising and that will involve the introduction of carbon taxes uh, across the board, not just on the high polluting companies. And that will mean that the fossil competitors steadily get more and more difficult to uh, put projects through and we'll become, relatively speaking, more and more viable without doing any more you know, technology development. Do you think that back in 1992 you were part of the first wave of development of renewable energy? Because you said that, um, you, you said at the outset that at that time you were sort of inspired by looking around at what was happening and that there was a lot of discussion at time of climate change at that point. Was that, do you think, the first wave and we're now entering another big wave of change? Yes, well I was actually living in Scotland in Aberdeen working on the oil and gas platforms. Um, around about the time that um, Margaret Thatcher stood up in front of the Royal Society and said that we may well unwittingly have begun a massive uncontrolled experiment with the Earth's atmosphere. And I thought, okay, that's good enough for me. I'm getting out of the oil industry. I'm getting into renewables. Now, in those days, there was a few companies in GB that were building wind farms Uh, One of those was Renewable Energy Systems, uh, and I joined the British Wind Energy Association. I've got a double-digit membership (laughs) number. And I I met these guys, and uh, they were procuring three wind farms, one in Cornwall, um, one in South Wales, and one in uh, Yorkshire. 
and so we um, sort of got fallen in with each other really and uh, I said well what about Northern Ireland uh, is there a chance to build wind farms over there and then the new legislation was coming in for Northern Ireland so we really literally were the first to come over on the boat from wow. Scotland and start snooping around for wind farm development in Northern Ireland um, Sean Quinn Group and Derry Lynn and Fermanagh also had an idea uh, and then there was two other projects uh, but um, together with Res, we built uh, the three of the first six wind farms across Northern Ireland and um, prior to that there had been a couple of research machines that NIE had installed at uh, Corky and um, you know they were doing good work with that uh, they had begun to understand what the impact on the grid would be with these machines because they're synchronous, asynchronous generators um, uh, but when we began to do the development work for the early wind farms we recognised that there was a lot of uh, people who didn't really understand it at all so we did quite a lot of effort um, bringing them up to speed uh, inviting them to go over to England to see an operational wind farm to meet their counterparts in England. You know, uh, we had NIE over meeting ManWeb, for instance, and we weren't in the room so they could talk about the nuts and the bolts of all of this. Um, so the burden of developing a project was actually made that much more difficult because you had to change people's hearts and minds. Now, actually, looking back, I think that was the more interesting part of it, uh, you know, in reality, and it's what made you feel uh, different, you know, made you feel special. Like a pioneer. Like a pioneer, uh, and because it was something that we all believed in as well, uh, it was a fantastic uh, period we went through. We were really uh, pleased with ourselves and the, the, the way we got on, and uh, we enjoyed that period immensely. What were the main challenges in terms of people's attitudes? Was it the aesthetic aspect of it, the noise they can sometimes produce, or just simply feeling that it wasn't going to be a long-term viable option? Well, yes, it's all of those. I think the biggest one is the visual intrusion in the landscape. You know, if someone doesn't really like the way they look, then uh, you can't persuade them otherwise. Uh, my view was always, well... It would be nice if they didn't have such an impact, um, but re in reality, climate change is such a difficult problem to solve and we just have to have them whether we like it or not. In the long term, uh, the whole of the North Sea will be covered in wind farms offshore and they'll be out of sight uh, of the land. And so anyone who particularly doesn't like them has got that to look forward yes. to, you could say. And fundamentally, though, what I remind myself was the fact that they are not permanent, that they can, as you say, they can be removed and recited if necessary. While, and, and aesthetically, sometimes they can be quite pleasant to look at, certainly from a distance. And it beats the alternative in many respects. Yes. And now we've gotten used to them a bit more. Yes. Now you wouldn't be naturally as critical of them, I think you could say. Um, so... You know, going forward, I think everyone realises that we've just got to make the best of these things. Absolutely. The planners don't presume 
that you would be given permission after the 25-year period is up. So there's always the opportunity to have uh, objections. So is that how long planning permission lasts for them is 25 years and then it's reviewed after that period? Yes, it would be extended or uh, it would be extinguished and fresh planning for a different set of wind turbines would be sought because the technical life of a wind turbine is 25 years. So the world uses more wind and solar power every year, but together they only account for around 4% of total energy consumption. What do you think is still inhibiting growth within the industry? Uh, Well, there's um, absolutely no doubt about the answer to that question, and it is that fossil fuels are subsidised. And they're subsidised to the tune of trillions of dollars per annum. This is a figure... Uh, mentioned recently by the International Monetary Fund. You can look that reference up. I can put it in the show notes, actually, so anybody who's interested can go and read more about it. Yes, and I must say, when I first read it, it sounded strange. Trillions of dollars of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. How does, I mean, is that them buying oil tankers, pipelines, refineries? Where's the... But it's not, actually. There's a certain amount of the money is in that. But the vast majority of it is recognition that the damage caused by fossil fuel emissions on the environment, the causing climate change, and in the future, the things we've got to spend money on to survive, um, it's the fact that those costs in the future aren't being borne today in the price of the fuel oil, which is... um, the subsidy and um, if that external cost of burning fossil fuels was internalised into the economics of filling up your car with petrol or switching on your light switch at home or whatever if that was properly done and they know how to do it and they've calculated it all out um, then the uh, playing field would be levelised and renewables would be much, much cheaper. They're already getting to the point of price parity with newly installed fossil stations, especially if those are fitted with carbon capture and sequestration devices, which they now have to be, really. Um, uh, So the biggest thing of all is just get on and put those carbon taxes in place. Um, It's extend the European Union's emissions trading scheme right across all sources of carbon. It's to tax goods going in and out of countries that have a carbon footprint associated with them. There's a whole raft of things that are well known about now. Uh, It's just that the politicians of today can't quite bring themselves to actually do something. It's the action which is missing and, uh, you know, we're really becoming desperate now to uh, have them do that. And until they do, it's going to be the future generations that are going to pay the real price for this? It is, and we are stealing their future by using up the uh, allowable remaining carbon budget in a carefree way. Um, Oh, I've got a horse show I want to go and see uh, in London and actually it 
coincides well with visiting a, a, a wedding of somebody else down in Cornwall. You know, and you take three or four flights and you don't think anything of it. Uh, these, this is what is uh, the problem, really. It's getting people to look at their own lives and realise that by almost anything and everything they do throughout the whole day is giving rise to these unsustainable levels of carbon emissions. It's very sort of blue sky thinking and I always apologise for asking it, but do you think there will be in the future some alternative to jet engines and jet fuel that will be able to transport people sort of across the world but without the same level of carbon impact? It's a good question. It's one that people have been looking at for many, many years. Uh, cars, for instance, will be electric batteries, probably, if there is many cars. Yes. <laughs> uh, most cars are used for personal mobility, and for that you'd be far better off on a bicycle or an electric scooter or on a bus or something. Um, but with aeroplanes, there isn't really... Uh, beyond um, manufacturing syn synthetic uh, kerosene, which is the aviation spirit, because it, you, you can't burn other fossil fuels in an aircraft because of the altitude they fly at and the power-to-weight ratio they require, um, and so you actually have to make it. And you can make it, actually, from hydrogen, from carbon dioxide, um, there are processes, but it you know quadruples the price. So, uh, and that's fine uh, up to a point. Uh, I think if you double the price of air flying, uh, the number of people wanting to fly will come down to about a tenth of what it currently is. So. In terms of the evolution of B9 energy over the years, and actually even before the business was started, you've had to take some pretty significant risks in order to try and drive innovation. How did you approach some of those decisions? Yeah, well, um, we knew that projects that are risky and the first of a type, when you're an entrepreneur, we know that projects take twice as long as you think and cost you twice as much as you think. And actually, experience has borne that out pretty well, exactly. <laughs> um, and the worst thing, it seemed to us, was to be borrowing money from a bank to go out and spend it, only to run out halfway through what you wanted to achieve. So we, we decided not to borrow any money from external sources at any Goodness. point. Um, and we put our own money, uh, we all carried on working in our previous jobs and we just put our own money into the hat and we spent that as we needed to, to get the projects to financial close so the projects were then ready to build um, and so at that point um, it's a project finance, it's about a third of uh, equity and two thirds of debt and that, of course, is project finance, and that's a different... You are borrowing mm. money there, but it's against the asset, and it's knowing that you've got 25 years of revenue streams yes. with government-backed you know, f uh, income streams and everything. So, um, And then, actually, we had to wait quite a number of years after that before we sold the projects on, and we actually got paid for the first time. I was just going to ask you, did it make the process slower, but ultimately allowed you to retain a higher degree of control over what was happening? Yes, we had total control. Uh, we knew we were never going to go 
bust in indebted and lose our houses you know so it was um it was all about that personal risk now when we built the first three wind farms we immediately formed a second company which was b9 energy o&m limited that many operation and maintenance and that company was completely different to B9 Energy Services, which had been the development company. Yes. Uh, being a developer is like going to Las Vegas and throwing the dice up the table and see what you get. High risk, high reward. Whereas operation and maintenance was you do you turn up every day, you pump grease into the bearings, you torque the bolts with your big <laughs> spanner, you make sure the machines keep running, you write the report at the end of the month. It's low risk and it's low reward, but you get paid yes. every month. So the two companies with two separate businesses running in parallel was a, a really good way of giving you short-term income and the mortgage payments could yes. still happen. But you had the big prize that you were still working towards in the longer term. So it allowed you to achieve a balance and perhaps explore in one aspect of the business, explore those new innovations to be creative, but while at the same time having some security. Yes. And with development, there's a lot of you write letters or you make applications and you sit around for people to respond or for them to go through all of the hoops before they tell you whether you've been successful or not. And it's in those moments in between that you go off and read all the technical papers about the latest developments and you do a bit of lobbying, you know, and um, uh, uh, it's a vicious circle of trying to keep ahead of the game and, and, and understand what is the next opportunity because as soon as one area becomes more mature all the big players come in they drive the prices down they scoop up all the people you know i mean your, your entrepreneurial landscape just disappears before your very eyes and you've got to uh, these are the very people though that you sell yes. your assets to uh, and that's how you cash out of, of the business ultimately which is what you're there to do so do you think you have to as a smaller player certainly at the outset you had to be fast and reactive in terms of what was happening within the industry to try and offset those big companies that could as you say come in quite rapidly if they felt that there was something where they could turn a profit yes and actually we discovered that being in northern ireland and it having its own devolved energy environment played really well into our hands because the market here was seen as too small for those big global players to come in and have enough of a business uh, portfolio to make it worth their while. It just was too small. So um, that suited us. And actually, big names like Vestas and Siemens, who... um, came into Northern Ireland, we bought wind turbines from these people, but they didn't want to set up a base here just for the few little machines they'd sold us. So we did the work for them on a subcontract, and that gave us extra revenue streams as well. So had Northern Ireland been 10 times the size, we wouldn't have found it as easy a process to go through so sometimes actually and almost counterintuitively the small size of a country like northern ireland can work to the advantage 
in yes. some areas. Yes, and no less so in going in to see the uh, utilities regulator or to go and see some of the directors of Northern Ireland Electricity or anybody, the, the planning authorities, anybody you need to see in government you lift the phone, you get an appointment and you go and see them. That just doesn't happen in GB. You know, the people that we've worked with from GB over the years, you know, always astonished at how easy it is to communicate here and uh, get the right people in the room. And uh, And I find as well that the different government departments are often happy to work with each other here and you yes. wouldn't find that in GB either. Absolutely. Whenever I speak to business owners about social responsibility and sustainability, they're sometimes concerned about the additional costs involved in terms of both time and money. Can you offer any advice in terms of how you've dealt with those issues within B9 Energy? Uh, well, we um, we were very strong advocates of sustainability, but in its original definition, which was to do with the environment. As the uh, months and the first couple of years went by, it began to be that there was a commercial and a social dimension to sustainability as well. And the number of times that that meant that you couldn't do the environmental sustainability piece correctly it was almost every time. Really? Because you couldn't afford it because it would uh, put people out of work or... Um, um, the project wouldn't get the anticipated rate of return for shareholders. So therefore, I'm sorry, we can't do that nice environmental measure. Um, and uh, it frustrated me immensely, and still does actually, uh, because if we don't address the environmental sustainability question, it's just going to cost us an awful lot more in the future, both in terms of economic um, activity and in social costs as well. Um, so we responded to the client's uh, demands for these corporate social responsibility type things and we set up those schemes. We introduced a uh, ISO 14001, the international standard for environmental management. We did uh, 9001 for quality and OSAS 18001 for uh, health and safety. So we were triply accredited. We had an independent uh, person in our company as a, an auditor for all that stuff who answered directly to the managing director. Uh, so we did everything. Uh, anybody on the outside looking in would see uh, a very good structure yes. for that and we've won a few, quite a few awards and things over the years for that but um, it could have been different it, we could have done more on the environmental side than, than, you know, we introduced cycle to work schemes and things like that and they were never taken uh, any notice of really <laughs> Yes, something that I hadn't really thought so much about is the tension between those different aspects that something might have huge environmental benefits, but people may not be happy with the sort of the social costs 
And I would imagine that that is going to become increasingly common, particularly in terms of the likes of automation and AI and the potential job losses involved, even if there might be potentially other benefits associated with it. So I suspect that's going to be an area that we're going to have to tackle with more in future is these tensions between the different aspects of social responsibility. As you say, over the decades, it has um, sustainability have expanded to include a much broader range of um, ideas and issues. So what would you say you're most proud of in terms of everything that you've achieved over uh, the the career history and the history of B9 Energy so far? Well, I I think it's maintaining control of our own destiny, really. You know, uh, we don't owe money to people. Um, We can act independently as much as we want to. And um, it means that you're like a free-range chicken rather (laughs) than a a battery hen, you know. (laughs) Um, And that makes you... We were all free-spirited people when we started the company, and, and so we still are. And I think that's the... Looking back, that's definitely been a good thing for us all, you know. Do you think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs are driven by, is the desire to be a free-range chicken rather than a battery hen? Yeah, possibly, although in the classic sense, of course, uh, in a capitalist world, it's about making money. Um, And, you know, this is one of the difficulties that we face because climate change, as we now see it, um, has been caused by capitalism. And capitalism says that you have to uh, make the best profits for your shareholders. And beyond that, it doesn't really say anything else. It's totally about profits. So if you introduce into boardrooms corporate social responsibility and uh, be good to the planet and be good to people as well, it is diametrically opposed to the main objectives of commercial companies. And there will always be that friction uh, and if capitalism is going to be able to solve climate change it needs to introduce some new type of working arrangement that would get over that particular problem I don't know what it is but <laughs> do you think there is potential that capitalism can solve it or there seems to be increasingly loud voices to suggest that we need to completely rethink the system Yes, and for young people in particular uh, who haven't seen, haven't grown up in a capitalist world all their life, yes, um, they would say, well, you just switch over to this other way of doing yes. it then, you know, whatever that other way is. Um, but, you know, anybody who is in a company and who is a shareholder just can't say oh rip all all that money up and throw it out the window you know very easily so that's the tension that there is Uh, capitalism itself needs to try and devise a method by which people can still have shares and make money but where we solve climate change but where the everything i read so far i'm not seeing any formulas coming forward that would actually do that because I'm going to ask you what you think the biggest challenge is currently facing us in terms of sustainability are, but it sounds that that perhaps is it, that the system is set up in such a way that 
it will always limit or curtail efforts towards sustainability? Yes. And, and of course, if you incentivize industry to make money from solving climate change, then they will do it. Uh, we didn't, uh, the Western world didn't win the Second World War for any other reason that they made the industry so that they could make money out of it. And um, all of the uh, car companies and whatnot, they all just started making tanks and trucks and guns and bullets. And when the war was over, they all went back to making their cars again. Um, um, Henry Ford was asked if he wanted to make parts for tanks uh, and for aircraft. And he said, no, I want to make aircraft. And within six months, he had a factory which is about two kilometres in length and spitting out dozens of these bombers every week. I mean, uh, Herculean achievements were made uh, because we had to and because um, these companies were allowed to make money. And that's really the the notion of the Green New Deal, which is sort of coming out of America nowadays, where... Uh, we've got to get onto a Second World War type footing, start um, adjusting what we do by rationing or whatever it is, but allow companies to make money, create lots of jobs in renewable energy and you know insulating houses and anything and everything to get the uh, decarbonising pathway achieved by you know, 2050 as it currently stands, but many people say that's too late. We've got to do it much earlier than that. And, you know, by the way, all of those figures don't have any methane emissions in them from, you know, melting tundra permafrost, for instance. So it could be that it'll have to be worse again, you know, for us. Because I'm going to ask you if you think the likes of the protests, because previously, whenever we met, we had a chat about what has been happening globally, particularly the movements uh, driven by activists such as as Greta Thunberg. Do you think they are going to really drive change? I think so. Uh, um, I got out of the oil industry and into renewables in 1988. And I felt that it was a strong enough threat then that my whole career should be in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. And all those 30 years since then, um, there's never been a sort of uprising, if that's the right word, of popular opinion that we've got a problem that we need to solve uh, than... Greta Thunberg's uh, school strikes has been absolutely phenomenal and as we sit here in July it's not even a year since she's been doing her strikes and she started with one person herself and on the 15th of March there was 1.6 million school kids on strike around the world I mean this is uh, phenomenal and and uh, you know you said well why are they doing it it's because they're so young and the majority of their life, they're not going to be able to emit any carbon dioxide and they'll be having all sorts of constraints on them. And it's it's not fair for a start, but it's also very scary. You know, um, will agriculture be able to feed people? Will we 
prompt wars to happen over dwindling resources of water and land or whatever. Um, these are all uncertainties that young people are rightly very uh, concerned about. And um, so for that reason, I got a poster of uh, This Scientist Supports Greta and I stuck it on a bit of board and I've been to all of the school strikes in Belfast so far and uh, I will continue to do so. I think it's important for adults to realise now that here is a real genuine group of people that um, are in contrast to, to adults. Adults can take it or leave it they can deny the science or they can stand by and watch it all happen. They don't really mind. Um, they're certainly not voting yet for drastic changes to be implemented. But the young people are feeling very genuine about this and they will be uh, rightly angry and upset. And I think we need to give them all the support we can give them. And I hope that they will be demanding a lot more in terms of institutions like ourselves at, at Queen's, of their schools, in terms of us doing our part in relation to sustainability and to climate change as well. And I hope that we can contribute towards that and that we can deliver for them in terms of what they need us to do, but also in terms of businesses as well, that we we discussed before about how in time, perhaps not the not too distant future, that certain things in much the same way that smoking has become socially un uh, unacceptable, that you said you can see a day coming where driving a diesel car may become socially unacceptable and that may be one of the most significant drivers of change. Yes, uh, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's absolutely going to happen. Uh, yeah, you can see the, all the writing on the wall. Uh, lots of organisations are divesting from their fossil fuel company shares. Um, people like the Catholic Church, the Church of England, Church of Ireland, the Irish state itself, the Norwegian Sovereign uh, Wealth Fund... Uh, the list is endless pension funds. They're writing letters to the bodies that represent oil and gas and coal companies and say, you have to leave these fossil fuels in the ground because if you burn them, then we don't hit the two degree uh, rise. You know, we're heading for three or four or five, which is cat catastrophic. Uh, so you have to do these and, and the reading between the lines what they're saying is if you don't then we're going to divest we're going to sell our shares in your company and as soon as um, the share, shares begin to be sold uh, other people would see that they don't want to be left with a worthless yes. share so they start selling as well and you get a run on those company shares and vast as those companies are today what they actually have in their bank account is other people's money and if those other people decide to take that away because they're divesting then that's that's you know it's lights out for them um, so they have an opportunity to do something and not just greenwash this time please yes, yes. Um, and what I'm interested in now is this uh, unprecedented situation where billions of dollars are divested from those companies 
and the investors end up with all this cash in their ledgers, in their wraps. Yes. Now, well, what am I going to do with that money? And this is where renewable energy and the infrastructure for matching up the generator with the consumer, so the uh, the, infa- the transportation infrastructure, the uh, the fuels, all of the energy storage devices, is a similar asset class mm-hmm. to the oil and gas right. industry in a way, and certainly it keeps cars moving. It keeps yes. all the sort of the world ticking over. So I would say, people who have divested in oil, coal, and gas companies could reinvest in these renewable equivalents. And I'm interested in setting up a fund that would specifically be there for that purpose. It would only take money into the fund if you could show you've now recently divested from oil and gas. And I would use that specifically for projects where they're totally integrated and making sure that renewable energy can be used very efficiently which could potentially really allow for some pretty big leaps forward in terms of the technology by having that funding available. Yes, the technology is all there, uh, with the exception of aircraft fuel, as you mentioned earlier on, which is going to be a real problem. Um, But uh, all the other technologies are there. It's just getting them to scale then? It's getting them to scale. If they start to be mass-produced, the unit price comes down... Uh, the skills would appear. You know, it, it's all of those things. It's increasing employment opportunities then for people within those areas. Yes, and again, that, that sort of refers back to the Green New Deal again because they want the, mil- the sort of transformation in the industry to be same as the military one in the Second World War, but instead they'd be making solar panels and battery packs and uh, hydrogen cars and all this kind of stuff. Um, and um, you know it is possible Uh, technologies are there we don't need any new technologies really Uh, it's just the political will give us the money level the playing field and uh, you know this could be a very exciting time and I think once we begin to slow the rise in the emissions and we level off the emissions and then we begin to see them dropping, mm-hmm. we'll have that sense of achievement that we can solve this problem uh, and that will, you know, people, momentum will grow at that point. feels like we're on a precipice and something just needs to push it forward, be it activism, be it investment or some combination of all those different factors just to make that breakthrough. Yes, and of course that's what the Paris Agreement was all about. Uh, At COP21, 200 countries around the world decided they would sign up to this agreement to all jump over the edge together. Uh, But of those 200 uh, countries, there's not one that has a suite of policies that would allow them to honour their commitments uh, under signing the Paris Agreement, not one, which is ridiculous. And now Britain, uh, UK, first country in the world to declare a climate emergency with a big fanfare. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean? What has happened since? You know, what action are we actually going to take that will, um, you know, help the whole thing? And it's unclear. Um, The politicians, in my view, are like rabbits in the head headlumps. 
They can't move because they think it would be unpopular. And this is why the school strikes and bolstered by adults joining in is so important because as soon as the politicians see that there's a ground swell of concern and and desire to do something, then uh, they will just simply, a stroke of a pen, they can bring in the policies. I mean, all the work's been done. We know exactly what to do and how to do it. Um, But uh, they're not moving at the moment. And, you know, I'm there with my placard to do my bit to try and move that forward. This is going to ask you, in terms of what we can do as individuals, do you have any suggestions? Is it getting out there and being active, getting into the streets and supporting particularly the younger people? Uh, Yes, I mean, there's a very definite place for that. I mean, not everybody can do that, of course, if they're working hard and, you know, families at home and all those things. So it's it's not for everybody. Um, But I think if you pick a day and when you get up in the morning till you go to bed at night, just think of everything you do during the day. Is it consuming fossil fuel and is it uh, emitting carbon dioxide? And, you know, just even drinking a, a glass of water. That water came from a water treatment plant that is powered by fossil fuel power stations and increasingly by solar and wind, which is good. But, uh, you know, everything we do is it just about is predicated on cheap abundant fossil fuels and that's why we do so much of it so it's raining all that in don't buy don't go by car if there's a bus available you know cut down on the the red meat the beef really in particular um uh, walk and cycle more um you know there's lists of things which you could do um you can compare uh, the labels at the supermarkets of green beans that come from County Armagh or from Egypt. You know, they fly those perishable vegetables from Egypt and the emissions per bean are an awful lot more than than one we would grow locally. So there's there's local farmers groups now and local product produce and get into that and and it might also save you some money potentially with some of those obviously there's certain things that will cost us more and we have to weigh that up but equally eating locally by supporting local businesses sometimes we can actually save some money in the process and perhaps eat a better diet too as a result yes so there can be there can be multiple benefits it's hard i think some of the most difficult things are around planning and and time that people are so busy that it can seem quite overwhelming so it's supposed to be there's there's room for businesses who can provide options for people that are more sustainable but also take account of the fact that lives are busy and so i'm going to do a podcast actually on food sustainability and waste and so i can definitely bring those issues up and say well how can how can consumers how can businesses make that process more easy for people so finally at the end of the podcast i ask each guest the same question what do you think it means to be a good business today either generally or from the perspective of sustainability oh well i think uh, the time has now come that it's um entirely are you doing your bit to make sure that we decarbonize by 2050 because it's not going to be 
easy. Uh, people will have to make changes, sacrifices. Uh, hopefully there'll be good things along the way yes. as a result of it. But um, unless you're totally focused on that, then you're going to end up uh, letting down your own shareholders because you get put out of business by circumstances. Um but, uh, you know, again, it comes back to those uh, young schools striking um, girls and boys, you know. It's their future. And um, they'll look back at us um, uh, with, with shame, really, if we don't do this properly. Absolutely. David, thank you for agreeing to take part today and thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast and our other work related to ethics, responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUB Ethics or email ers at qub.ac.uk. Certainly, David, I think that's what I'm going to do tomorrow morning whenever I get up is stop and think about each thing that I do over the course of the day and how it's contributing to climate change and what I can possibly do differently in future so thank you so much thank you and thank you for having me